Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring quantum music. You're listening to a recording of the premiere of Spinnings at the Goethe Institute in London on the 8th of December 2022. This is a network of three Q1 synth instruments. A Q1 synth is a quantum synthesizer that uses real quantum hardware computers to synthesize sounds. Playing the Q1 synths are Pete Thomas, Paolo Tabarai and Eduardo Miranda. hear more about that event at the Goethe Institute later in the podcast, and we'll hear from Maria Manone, a theoretical physicist and composer. First, here's a quick message from Physics World's Hamish Johnston about this podcast sponsor. Thank you to Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this podcast. The company is one of the world's leading developers, manufacturers, and suppliers of vacuum solutions. Pfeiffer Vacuum has been producing innovative end-to-end vacuum solutions since 1890, and over the years it's collaborated with scientists working on some of the largest and most ambitious scientific experiments. For many years, Pfeiffer Vacuum has been a globally well-established and highly competent partner for space research. This involves providing huge chambers so that spacecraft can be tested under vacuum conditions on Earth. The vacuum chambers provided by the company range from small chambers suitable for lab applications to large-sized space simulation and coding chambers. Pfeiffer Vacuum offers both standard and customized vacuum chambers and solutions that are precisely designed to meet the customer's needs and also meet the highest quality and engineering standards. Find out more at pfeiffer-vacuum.com. Philip Ball is a science writer and an editor of the journal Nature. His feature for Physics World, entitled Can We Use Quantum Computers for Music, is now on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. Quantum music is uh, an idea that is relatively new. It's um, 
seems to be something that people have only really begun exploring in the past few years when quantum computers themselves have been publicly available. You know, there are these small systems with just a few qubits that anyone can use if they register. And so there seem to be a small, tiny group, really, of um, musicians and composers and others who figure that they want to use these resources to see what these resources have to offer for making music. So it's really at the very early, at the embryonic stage. No one really knows uh, where it might go, whether it might go anywhere, whether quantum computing, you know, really has something new to offer music that traditional computers can't do. It's all experimental at this stage. Um, but I think it's it, it's it seems really exciting. You know, I've heard a bit of it and it was kind of interesting. Certainly very avant-garde. So, you know, it's it's almost not even a field yet. It's just an idea. Okay. But you've just held up a very large book all about it. What What's in that book then, if it's new and we don't really know? Yeah, well, this has just been published, this book. It was published this uh, this year. And it is, or claims to be, and I th- I'm sure this is true, the first book that talks about uh, quantum... It's co- simply called Quantum Computer Music. It's published by Springer. Um, so it's really, I think every pretty, probably pretty much everyone who is interested in this idea is in this book. Um, and, uh, and it it gives a sort of survey of things that might be done using quantum computing in a musical context. So that, you know, it ranges from using quantum computers for composing, for performing, but also quite intriguingly for actually recording music. Um, you know, we, we record it digitally using classical computing. It's possible to think of ways of uh, developing a quantum audio. Um, what would that? What's the best way to represent sound, you know, as a quantum state? And what would be the point of doing it? Um, and it even goes into sort of thinking about uh, using quantum music for lighting and, uh, you know, for broader aspects of musical performance. So um, it's a book full of ideas. It's actually very dense. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of um, uh, theory in here of quantum you know, quantum uh, uh, mechanics, basically theory. So it's certainly not for the lighthearted or for the kind of you know musician who just wants to dabble in this. I think they'd be quite daunted. Um, but it does, for the first time, bring together some of these ideas. If you are looking for reading material on quantum music, I can recommend Philip Ball's feature on the Physics World website. In that feature. He tells us about an event he went to all about quantum music. Yes, uh, it was an event that was um, put together by a composer and computer scientist called Eduardo Rec Miranda, um, who is at the University of Plymouth. And I had, um, in a completely different context, in writing about music, I had made uh, contact with Eduardo some years back. And uh, so he thought I might be interested in uh, in this event. So he got in touch and said it's going on. It was a very small event. It was hosted at the Goethe Institute, which is a kind of German cultural institute um, just opposite Imperial College in London. And uh, I was intrigued. Uh, this was in December. And so I thought, well, let's see what, you know, what comes of this. So I went along and it was a small event. There were probably about 150 people there in the little lecture theatre they have at the Goethe Institute. But among them... I, there were a couple of people there and I thought, is that, is that? Yes, it is. It was Peter Gabriel and Brian Eno. 
And uh, I suddenly, you know, I mean, uh, one shouldn't be too impressed by by big names, but it does, you know, it did sort of show actually there are people who are already, you know, like the two of them who are already switched on to this as something that's happening and who are intrigued by it. Um, and I don't know, you know, where that's going to go. I don't know whether others will, um, uh, other musicians, other high profile musicians will become involved. But of course, Brian Eno and Peter Gabriel have always had a long interest in experimental music um, in the avant garde. Uh, so in a sense, you know, they are the kind of people that you would obviously be expecting to to take an interest. But it was very intriguing that even at that early stage, you know, they were there to to just find out what was going on. So the event consisted um, of, uh, you know, there were some talks about general background, but then there were some performances uh, using quantum computers. And in some way or another, they all used a basically a link through the cloud to the quantum computers that IBM make um, in New York. Uh, Eduardo didn't seem too clear, actually, whether they were housed. There's a new kind of center, um, a sort of a quantum data center that IBM has set up in Poughkeepsie, New York. But, you know, until then, they've had their quantum computers at the Yorktown Heights Research Center. So he wasn't quite sure which one was being used. But, you know, live in real time, the, the signals that they were making on stage, the performers, were being sent to that quantum computer and processed in some way and sent back. And it was very intriguing. It was certainly the kind of thing that, you know, you'd need to be interested in the avant-garde of music. Uh, It wasn't pretty music by any means. It sounded more like a sort of horror movie soundtrack, but intriguingly so to my ear. The other person who would automatically come to mind for this sort of experimental thing would be Bjork. Yeah, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? And uh, for all I know, she may already be thinking along those lines, but absolutely, she's the sort of person who you'd be uh, expecting to, to, you know, be starting to take an interest in an area like this. But it's, I mean, there aren't many quantum computers, right? They've had to connect over the internet to one to do it. So how realistic is it that this could be anything other than um, a niche avant-garde way of doing music? Or to put it less politely, maybe a gimmick. I mean, I think that's what some people wonder about. But, uh, and, you know, again, I think, frankly, and Eduardo says this as well, that it's too early to really be able to tell. And part of the reason for that is that the quantum computing resources that are generally available to to people like him at the moment are very, very rudimentary. So they were using a seven qubit device, um, IBM device. Um, And, you know, he has made it very clear that there's really nothing that he is doing at the moment using quantum computing that could not be simulated on a classical computer. Um, But that's, you know, because of the stage we're at at the moment, quantum computing is moving so fast, you know, already IBM, their sort of state of the art chip has 400 and something qubits on. Um, And, you know, that's, it seems to be sort of changing. I mean, there's a kind of almost like a Moore's law for quantum computing now that is really, really fast. You know, it's changing, um, you know, within each year, it seems like there's a doubling, if not more, of the number of qubits available. Um, So, and Eduardo says that already some of the algorithms that he's using, although you could do them on a classical computer, they would be uh, computationally expensive to do. 
And, you know, it's probably not going to be very long at all before you're w using quantum resources in a way that's hard to simulate classically, just as already there are some problems that classical computers would struggle with and quantum computers can do quite quickly. And I guess that's particularly important if you're wanting to use them. And this is a part, a big part of um, certainly an aspect of quantum music. If you're wanting to use them live in real time, um, that, you know, you need those resources to be able to compute fast. So, um, you know, I think that's the way it's going, that as quantum computing resources expand, as they're clearly going to do, I think the possibilities for using them musically are going to expand accordingly. I think it's probably worth taking a step back slightly, just to look at what quantum computing is. I mean, the way it's conventionally explained, and I'll try and do this carefully, because sometimes it's a little loosely explained, but um, in standard classical computing, uh, we're used to the idea that there are bits that um, encode uh, in binary. So, you know, you could say they, they have two possible states, which we generally represent as a one or a zero. Qu for quantum computing, um, we use uh, kind of analogous um, quantum bits, um, but they can, as well as uh, encoding either a one or a zero, they can effectively encode mixtures of those two. Um, I, and I should really use the technical word superpositions because mixtures are something different in quantum uh, computing. Um, so um, what that really means is not that there, I mean, sometimes it's said, well, it means these qubits can be both one and zero at the same time. That's not really the best way of putting it. I mean, they can be, you know, they can have those uh, components in any ratios for one thing. Um, but also what it really means is that when you make a measurement of that qubit to find out its state, uh, it could either be a one or a zero with different probabilities, depending on how you've you've set it up. Um, and what that effectively means is that you can, uh, th th there is a sort of bigger capacity for encoding information, if you like, in fewer qubits. So you can do with just a handful, you know, I, I said that the, um, the devices they were using had seven qubits. Um, which sounds, you know, when you think of the millions or billions even uh, of bits that our, you know, standard desktop com computers have, it sounds paltry. But actually, already there's the, uh, enough potential in the, that handful of qubits to do some very, very complex tasks because of this great uh, capacity for encoding because of the, the possibility of using uh, superpositions. And the way it tends to happen is that the qubits have to be coherent with one another. If you like, they're, 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 you can think of them as, you know, like quantum objects, they're kind of wavy objects. And coherence just means that the waves of each of them sort of stay in step with one another. That's essential for doing quantum computing. And that's actually the big problem with it, because it's very hard to maintain that coherence. Um, thermal energy, any sort of heat, you know, very quickly tends to wash it away, which is why we don't tend to see quantum phenomena at the everyday level. Um, so the challenge for quantum computing is to prevent that from happening. And generally what it means is that the qubits have to be cryogenically cooled um, as well as some other sort of measures to prevent that that decoherence. And they even then, they only stay coherent for a short time. I mean, you know, typically less than a second. But uh, the that's long enough for some quantum algorithms to be performed before the, the, the decoherence sets in. Is it always going to have to be cryogenically frozen? Is, it, is that a process that we just can't do at room temperature? 
Again, I, I think nobody knows. Um, at the moment, with the kind of kind of um, quantum bits and qubits that are, that are, that are standard in many of these devices, they um, are superconducting quantum bits, and superconducting superconductivity is itself inherently a quantum phenomenon. Um, so you have to cool uh, the the little they're kind of almost like little rings of of metal, and you have to cool them right down to get them into a superconducting state. And that state itself, because it's a quantum state it can be used to encode quantum information. So, um, you know, at the moment, uh, you, it, it is necessary to cryogenically cool them. But actually, you know, just in the past few weeks, we've sort of been hearing about how superconductivity itself, um, which is a quantum phenomenon, nevertheless, it seems possible to achieve it at something like, and perhaps literally at room temperatures um, in some systems. Ones in which, uh, generally speaking, you have to squeeze uh, to apply a lot of pressure to, to to get to the superconducting state. But, you know, it certainly seems feasible that you might be able to make superconductors that work at room temperature. You probably still need some sort of cooling to avoid the, the uh, decohering effects of heat, possibly, but we don't really know. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's it's essential. Um, I don't think it's a given that quantum computers will have to be cryogenically cooled. But even if they are, it's not a big deal, actually. It means, you know, that they have to be housed in these centers with cryogenic cooling and so on. But that's OK, because you, the resources, as I say, can be made available through the cloud. So I don't think that that in itself need be a uh, an obstacle to making quantum computing very useful. It does perhaps mean that, you know, certainly for the foreseeable future, we're not going to have quantum computing laptops. And it's not even clear that we'd actually want them. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, all, all of this uh, is is open in the indefinite future. We don't know what the limitations might be. To, to be perfectly honest, the first application, possible application of quantum computing that I've heard that made me think, oh, I can see you might want that in a laptop, is when you just mentioned the possible new ways of recording audio. I mean, that's a, that's a process that somebody might want on their laptop, right? It's possible, yeah. I mean, you know, again, it, 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 we don't even know what would be the best way of representing audio in a quantum sense. But, you know, they are waves <laughs> and audio is waves. Um, and maybe you can, you know, what, what would happen if you could sort of create superpositions of two different tunes? I really don't know what the the possibilities are. But, uh, you know, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that Edward and and others are you know keen to explore just what what are the possibilities and where might they be useful musicians look for inspiration everywhere and it's it's a wonderful thing that they look for it in science and they look for it in physics it quite often is a bit difficult to listen to when science and music meet from a science point of view i can totally see why it's interesting why is that interesting from a music point of well, view? Well, um, okay, here, here's one possible answer to that. Um, because there's also um, a lot of interest, of course, in using classical computers um, in uh, their sort of AI mode uh, for making music. And, you know, there are um, deep learning algorithms that have been made that are pretty good at creating pastiches of music in a certain style, just as ChatGPT can do it for text. So, you know, you can say to some of these, 
you know, algorithms give me a, a nocturne that sounds a bit like one of Chopin's. And these days it can do pretty well, which is is no big deal in itself. I mean, I find that a bit sort of dull. But what what but what's more interesting is that some of those systems, um, AI systems for music, they can generate musical ideas. And um, what some composers are doing is using them purely for that to generate things that they wouldn't, the composer themselves wouldn't have come up with, um, but that they can hear, you know, maybe just a sort of kernel of an idea that's been generated by AI and think that's got possibilities. I can do stuff with that. Maybe I can use the AI to expand on that, to, you know, um, develop it into something, or maybe I can do it myself. Um, uh, so, you know, that's the way um, AI is being used, or at least I think that's the way it's being used, interestingly, as a sort of tool for human composers, rather than just as a system for making a load of music that sounds a bit like what we've heard before. Um, and, you know, there is a, a, a long tradition of using, I mean, you said uh, that, you know, musicians and artists of all sorts have always been, there's always been some who have been really eager to use the latest technologies as soon as they appear and see what they can they can do for them. So, you know, that happened with the beginnings of recorded sound in the early 20th century. It happened in the 1950s uh, and 60s when classical computers started to become available. There were some uh, composers. Uh, Ioannis Xenakis, the Greek-French composer, uh, is probably the best known of them. He was a kind of avant-garde, you know, in his time. He was really interested in what computers could do for um, for music. John Cage, actually, the experimental US uh, composer, was another um, and they actually tended to sort of congregate um, around Bell Labs um, uh, in New, New Jersey in those days. There was a whole kind of group of scientists and artists and tech, technologists who were, you know, just trying to discuss stuff and see what these this new t- technology could do. And some interesting stuff did, I think, come out of that. Um, it, you know, it, it's always when it's sort of at the forefront, it's the cutting edge, it's uh, it's avant-garde, it is an acquired taste. And certainly the stuff I heard at in December, you know, would have been a, an acquired taste. It, it was, you know, there were rumbles, there was sort of static and so on. But actually, you know, what I've heard of Eduardo's music previously using other technologies is of that sort. It's almost closer to what some, I mean, the, the distinction is maybe arbitrary, but some people talk about sound art rather than music, that you're just using sound to create a kind of an ambience. Um, And, you know, that overlaps completely with what Brian Eno is known for doing. So, you know, at this stage, it is an acquired taste, but I actually find it much more interesting to, to, to see when the technologies can take you in new directions rather than, you know, seeing whether you can make a sort of quantum version of a Bach cantata or something. That's, that's dull. That's, that's kind of been done already. So why bother? At the quantum music event that Philip attended in London, there was also an interesting sounding interaction between a violinist and a quantum computer. Paul Stratton was one of the performers at the um, December uh, conference, uh, concert, I suppose we could call it. And um, in in that case, he was it was like a sort of call and response. He would play uh, an improvised line, a little phrase of music that would be processed, uh, you know, digitally and sent to the IBM computer that would do something using a quantum algorithm that would come up with a response. And that would then be played back in real time in the um, in the Goethe Institute. And, you know, you could play it back sort of choosing whatever 
sound you wanted. In this case, it was a kind of saxophone, a synthesized saxophone sound. Um, and so, you know, it was a kind of an improvised um, call and response between the computer and the uh, the violinist. Exactly how what Paul Stratton played was used to come up with a response line, you know, I don't know. It wasn't sort of it wasn't too clear. It was some kind of quantum algorithm. Um, and again, this is something that AI uh, music systems are doing as well, that they can, you can sort of, you know, they can improvise to some extent and they can re- with prompts from a, a live musician and you can get an interesting sort of um, interaction going there. Um and, uh, you know, again, it wasn't clear what the quantum aspect of this was adding to a, an, an approach like that, except that I would say with AI that you, you can often hear, you know, it's just uh, not much more than the same notes that have been improvised by the human sort of muddled around a bit and maybe, you know, slightly switched around. Whereas this, it sounded quite different, the lines that the computer was coming up with and, you know, in some ways quite surprising. And the hope, I guess, in a, uh, a situation like this is that then the human you know, performer is inspired by what they've heard in response and they come up, you know, they go off in a different direction and it goes from there in a way similar to the way many jazz musicians interact off one another. Um, so, yeah, that was another way in which the uh, the algorithms were used. The technological singularity is a hypothetical point in the future where technology growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible bringing about unforeseeable changes to human civilization. I'd like to think that quantum music won't replace all musicians and all music. And although those changes are going to be unforeseeable, I'd like to reassure those musicians listening too. Um, I don't foresee that. Um, and I don't certainly don't think we want it. Um, and, you know, there is a big discussion going on and it's happened It's happened much more with uh, with AI than with uh, quantum computing that, um, you know, people are talking about, well, what does creativity really mean? Because at the moment, um, as I say, AI systems can't really do much more interesting than pastiche. I've heard some that do, actually. Um, there was a, there's a, a group at uh, the University of Malaga in Spain who had a really interesting system certainly about 10 years ago, called Iamus, that um, was, it wasn't just making pastiche, it was genuinely composing pieces, again, in a kind of modernist style, quite a sort of spiky style. So it sounded to me like kind of early 20th century music, entirely uh, AI generated. And some of that was, I mean, it composed it, and then it could score it. And then some of that was played by professional musicians, including, uh, I think, the London Sinfonietta, um and uh it was interesting you know i think it was there were some interesting ideas um in there so uh, you know the, the, but 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 i think that 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 often when you're using deep learning like this you're just in a sense getting back what is already in the data set so the fact that you could make something that sounds a bit like a chopin nocturne if you train the ai on chopin nocturnes big deal you know that 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 doesn't impress me and it's always from what i've heard it's always a little bit more rubbish actually it's kind of it's you 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 can um yeah you just get a sense that okay it's like you know a, a not very good composer sort of trying to do a chopin nocturne but there are some cases where certainly non-expert listeners have struggled to tell the difference between the two 
Um, but, you know, I don't think that's ever going to be very interesting. And in any event, anything like that requires the human material, you know, to be trained on. Um, so so that it's not obvious that it's, there's any reason why it would replace us. And if it did, then it's not clear where it would get any kind of innovation from. Um, so, you know, I don't think there's, um, uh, there's a a strong argument for any of these technologies at this point being genuinely creative in their own right. But I think what they can do is to feed the creativity of musicians by doing things that the musicians themselves wouldn't do and don't expect. One such musician is theoretical physicist and composer Maria Manoni, who we'll hear from in a moment. But April the 14th is World Quantum Day, and the Physics World team is joining forces with their journals and e-books colleagues at IOP Publishing to celebrate all things quantum. The Physics World Weekly podcast, which I hope you all listen to as well as this one, will have a quantum theme, and the website will highlight a selection of quantum-related feature articles, interviews, and analysis pieces. Their colleagues in journals and ebooks will also be showcasing some of the best quantum content, and related ebooks will be offered at a discount. So don't miss out on Quantum Day celebrations at IOP Publishing. But now, let's go to Maria Manoni. I have a master's degree as a theoretical physicist, and then uh, I got other degrees in other disciplines. Um, more in detail, I studied music conservatory, where I studied conducting, composition and piano, and I got three other different degrees, all school, Italian all school. I moved to Paris, where I got uh, another master's degree in uh, computer science and acoustics, signal processing applied to music between IRCAM and UPNC for this season. And then I moved to the US, where I got my PhD in music composition. Then uh, for several years, I traveled between the US and Japan for a collaboration. And I'm currently working in Italy at the University of Palermo in my town in uh, computer engineering. And uh, I'm also collaborating with uh, Kafoska University of Venice. Were you always interested in physics and music? Yeah, in the first place, it was something pretty casual, I'd say, because I started studying music when uh, I was 11-ish uh, years old. Uh, but since my childhood, I've always been fascinated by that. And I started studying physics at university because I wanted to learn how nature was working. So I'm not sure if I precisely understood how nature was working, but at least I think I had very interesting studies. I had some professors who were interested in both topics, who encouraged me to start like putting things together. And little by little, I started to, to find out, um, to looking for um, the formal sides in music and uh, like the statics sides in physics. In my master's thesis in music, in physics, sorry, there was a chapter on music because a specific topic was the measurement of the amount of memory in a system, in a quantum system. And through some suitable adaptation, I used this formula under the supervision of my um, thesis uh, advisor. I adapted this formula to measure the amount of 
memory in a musical composition. And that worked. And uh, that works was recently, recently published. What do you mean by memory in music? So in music, actually we have, yes, we have time after time, but our way to listen to music is not an instant understanding. Rather, we have like chunks of time. And this is something connected with the amount of musical repetition. So for example, we can have a theme or a chord or a rhythm or something. Maybe something that has a duration in time, but pretty short. So some, some unit which can be recognizable, which can be recognized. So the more the repetitions and the higher the amount of memory in this sense. Of course, if we have like a classic piece with a precise structure, we are more likely to have repetition. If we have some kind of more random-like music, we have less. If we have a song, usually we have some specific structural repetition. So we have musical genre that have different amounts, usually in mean of memory, but also different styles of composers and different pieces. It is something which is related with our appreciation of music because we like to have somehow to have a repetition. Oh, this is the theme uh, that is recalled in the fourth movement from the first movement of the symphony. We like that because we are somehow driven by cycles and things. If we have too much repetition, things are boring, too predictable. If we have too few repetition, we cannot really understand what is going on in a musical piece. So it's something like a bit connected with the aesthetics of the musical piece. Yeah, there's like a very big difference between, you know, Can't Get You Out of My Head by Kylie Minogue and Subelis' Fifth Symphony in, well, in every way, isn't it? But <laughs> what, which pieces did you use for the study? In that study, we started during the, um, the thesis. Uh, my advisor is Professor, was Professor Compagno, uh, is a theoretical physicist who is retired now, but recently published the paper together. We looked at uh, um, first some classical music, Bellini, a song by Vincenzo Bellini, and then um, Philip Glass and uh, Bruno Maderna, which are like, more modern composers. However, the same structure uh, of analysis might be applied to different even to some pop music or jazz pieces, provided that we have a recording and we make a transcription uh, of the things with a separation of the different lines. And uh, yes, for this very specific study we had made, um, we need some kind of symbolic transcription. So the time we have, the onset, the pitches, loudness and duration, we had considered these elements. But nevertheless, we might extend this idea in a more sound processing domain. So we didn't that, but it could be a research idea for some new stuff. And maybe just working with audio signal and, uh, and working directly with the recordings. In this way, even without the description, we can do that. I think that it might be interesting to see not only examples of Western music, but also other musics around the world, and see if there are some kind of 
pattern repetitions we might see. So at the border with music information retrieval, which is a field in itself, usually people work with a lot of musical pieces and use auto, completely automatic techniques to compare stuff. But in that case, the inspiration regarding memory was directly from physics because I was working with non-Markovianity, um, a system uh, at the a time dynamics is Markovian. Markovian is if we have a time dependencies, which is connected with some uh, former time instance, but not with the entire previous time story. However, when uh, we have a non-Markovian dynamics, it means that we have uh, relevant effects of memory, not connected with just the former time instant. So, and there was precisely a formula to analyze that because we might have two states in physics with, that are different, but if after their time evolution, they get more and more similar between them, it means that we have lost the information regarding their difference. So we lost the memory in the sense. Uh, if they keep, they are distant, different at time zero, and they still are very different, easy to be, yes, to make some distinction, then we keep the information, we keep memory. In music, kind of the opposite, because if we have two musical passages which are similar to each other, then we, we say that we have a great amount of memory. So we just had to use the inverse formula for that. Has that changed the way you write music or listen to music? Yes, yes. Because after this study, that's funny that it was recently published, but it was like uh, 10 years ago. Uh, where before, like the revival of quantum things, um, I started making research in the domain of mathematics and music, and I'm still are. There is an entire community. It's not only me, using several aspects of math and physics, and computer science to analyze music and to create music. <clears throat> in some sense, uh, um, um, I, I became more aware of what I was doing in music. Because even when you just improvise, I'm also active as music improviser. When you improvise, what you are doing, you are taking some elements, you are making like a filtering, a selection, then you perform some variation, some elements, you propose, you take as input what the other guys in the band are doing and, and at the output you, you provide a new variation. So when you start thinking music in terms of element and transformation, somehow you are already doing science because a big bunch of science is connected with uh, functions or functors maybe and seeing how we can transform some material, how can we create variation. So somehow I became more aware about that. In some of my musical composition. I directly took inspiration from science. For example, I wanted to create some simple examples of stuff. Once I worked with uh, branching and I composed a piece where everything was started from a note and then divided into two musical sequences. 
then from one musical instrument to multiple ones. So it's like just dividing uh, into multiple elements. Other times I just focused on the concept of, uh, of sequence of transformation. Uh, for example, I was inspired by, you know, the penguin, the animal, uh, is a, a body constituted by several scales. So a single scale is the theme. And you apply the repetition, which is a mathematical operation. Then uh, you apply a change of the envelope, like following the shape of the animal. And again, you can use math to describe this operation. And I use this structure to build up a piece, to improvise as a scheme to improvise. So, I would say that um, science in general, uh, a way of thinking which is between math and physics, I think that can provide uh, countless ideas for music making. In the same way, we can have a musical piece or in general an artwork, and we can use categories coming from sciences to analyze that. But this is not something really new because people in the Renaissance were doing that, were like, putting stuff together. And in different parts of history, they have been, we also had philosophers who were artists, who were uh, scientists as well. Uh, Goethe was a poet. He was inspired by shapes in, uh, in nature. He was trying to find uh, the first Plant. So he was, was also performing some kind of scientific investigation with both theoretical and experimental way of working. So th what I'm doing um, maybe is different from what other people are doing, but uh, I, I think that there is some kind of beauty which is inside nature. We are part of beauty as well. So when we try to understand nature in something like um, some physicists said, we are trying to find out the beauty which is hidden inside nature. Um, and we are trying to make it art. So maybe a key to understand the art is like getting to the roots, but also Gaudí, um, the, the famous Spanish architect, yes, was thinking that way. So maybe we are just uh, being inspired by nature at these different levels, maybe. But, yeah, but there are a few levels, aren't there, between a pangolin 
and the quantum realm. Yes, quantum music is something relatively new, but uh, I would say that uh, this, this is part of this search, of this research of some kind of roots of beauty. There is something a bit more tricky here because when we can uh, see a tree, a mountain, an animal, they belong to our daily experience. Quantum does not, because it's something that we can measure, of course, we can think, of course, but we do not see quantum. So it's something which is not intuitive. It's something that also philosophically challenges our way of, um, of seeing the interaction between the measuring subject and the measured word. So in this sense, when we have quantum music, we cannot uh, do, in my opinion at least, a direct mapping because music is happening um, in classical physics, let's say like that. We have longitudinal waves, we have some dimensional scales and so on, while the quantum is happening in, a, in another, <laughs> uh, another dimension, completely different. However, we can borrow something from the quantum and bringing this information in the realm of music. For example, um, we can adapt, as I, as I made years ago, some criteria to measure stuff in the quantum domain to the musical domain. So considering like finite time intervals, for example. We can use um, quantum computers, which are making uh, measurement. They, we, we can perform measurement. We can have a state, we can apply a measurement, we can see what is the most likely output. We have quantum noise. So we are getting a lot of quantitative information and we can decide to map this quantitative information toward sound. But this operation of mapping is something that is like between art and science because we have an information from the quantum, for example, from computers, and the one that translates into another kind of information, how. The choice of how is also an artistic choice. We might obtain a sonification just to have um, an idea, which is, we can make graphs. We have the output of a quantum computation, we have a graph. Okay, the, the output with 0, 0, 0 is more likely than the output with 0, 1, 1. Okay, so we have a, a graph with two different bars. We can translate the information into sound. We might have a louder sound, a softer sound. So sonification can be used in a scientific way, but we can use this information and map into a completely different stuff. So in this sense, uh, I think that quantum use is something that is starting to be developed right now. I think that we are only at the beginning of this new world, I'd say. Can you tell me a bit about your process as a composer? You know? Where does inspiration come from for you? Well, well, at least for me, it can work in very different ways because I could be completely... Uh, I could be completely taken by, taken by an interesting result. For example, I'm working on a quantum circuit, for example, for something in my work about robotics, and then say, okay, that's a very interesting thing. How can 
um, how may I use sounds to, to give an auditory idea of that? And so, I, for example, I can just set up some notes and uh, imagine a quantum not measured state as a chord, then the measurement is just giving one note. Also other people did that, I'm not the only one. In this sense, I can use music as a way to gain a better understanding of what is going on in science. Um, I might also be inspired in a more, let's say, metaphorical way. Like years ago, I wrote a, uh, maybe it was a portrait for Fields uh, uh, inspired by entanglement, but it was kind of loosey inspiration. Just uh, this idea of two, um, of a state which is composed by parts which like locked together. You measure the other one, you force the other one to get a specific measure. Other times I just uh, compose in a more free way, just all style, sit at the piano, paper and pencil, and you write a song. You can do that. And uh, that's in this sense, uh, science can be a specific quantum can be used at a later time to, for example, to, um, to develop the musical material as I said before, we can think of objects and transformations between them. So, for example, we have a theme and we keep um, modifying, transforming this theme in a sequence of variation, which is something very classical. But we can also think of that as a process which has a little memory. So little by little, we are like losing the identity of the theme we have. At the end of the piece, we are left with a melodic cell, for example, 
which is completely different from the elements we started with. Sometimes I'm talking about melodies and things because I have a, a classic training, but uh, we can uh, work also with other musical parameters and apply the same idea. For example, we can have a mess of sound. So uh, like um, there, there are people who are working with concrete music and not only, who are working, for example, with chamber, which could be also generated electronically and so on. And then we work by taking away the sounds, let's say like that, and we can compare this operation, which is maybe, which might be compared with some kind of subtractive synthesis, let's say like that. But we can have a, a bunch of different sounds playing together, then we do something, and then we are left with some one chord, only one chord, or some, a small part of the sound. Okay, but... This could be compared with what? With the concept of destructive measure in quantum mechanics. So, and uh, we have a state, then uh, a physical system, then we force the system to have just one value. And all subsequent measurements, we have that value. So in this sense, the quantum can enter inside music, not only at levels of precise formulas, at the levels of outputs of quantum computer, but even at, a, I think, at a more ground level of concepts. Because, first of all, uh, I think part of the beauty of this kind of physics is that it's something, as I said, not intuitive. It's something that is, continue, even if you study that for years, it's always challenging. A quantum mechanics, oh, I remember that I studied Many Sagot University, and I took several courses of advanced quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, where you apply the quantization not only to the energy, but also to the field. It's like having a field, an ocean, which is made by, um, by particles, let's say that. And you extend all the same mathematics over and over, which is quite fascinating. So they are really the challenging ideas. And I think that also this idea can inspire art. Why not? Art is made of ideas. It's not important if you are writing a piece at the piano with a synthesizer or whatever. We are thinking, first of all. I hope you don't mind me asking, but is quantum music ever going to be anything more than something that's you know, interesting for people who are interested in the intersection of science and music, for composers... Uh, and for, well, just for a very niche audience? Ah, well, that's a great question. So I'm glad if uh, we could uh, talk again of this question in the next 10 years, let's say like that, because I think that we are really <laughs> at the beginning of this course. I see a lot of enthusiasm, which is fine. I hope that that will last for some time. <clears throat> I don't know yet. For now, it's kind of a uh, restricting thing. Because usually they are either physicists or computer scientists or composers or kind of a quantum superposition of all these guys who are trying to um, see things together, which is good. Because I, sometimes I see composi composition can also be an act of an experiment. Um, you can either compose a song in the style of it's Piaf, stay like that, or uh, you can... Uh, make um, 
uh, a more experimental study. So for now, we have a lot of experimental works, very interesting. We have uh, some of these works also made to the concerts. There are um, works directly derived from um, quantum computers, which are very, very interesting. Uh, I don't remember all the name right now, but that comes to mind. Very, very interesting uh, musical works by um, Professor Miranda, for example, and not only, there are several people who work with that. <clears throat> okay, for now it's MDST. So I would make distinction between maybe three layers. The layer of um, experiment. So you have something new, you want to see what is going on, and you make the experiment. And in this class, I also consider my own experiment when I use logic gates, for example, to determine if we will have some nodes or some other ones as the response to some kind of external input. This experiment. That could be nice to hear or not. Uh, when I write experimental music, I don't always consider that nice to hear, but just maybe it could be nice to see if it is interesting or not. Then... Uh, um, they can be the quantum applied in a more systematic way to create a new genre of music. I think we are on the way. There are people who are going that direction, but I think that we are still at the beginning uh, of this world. And uh, personally, I think that will require way more thinking also about what we are taking from the quantum world. Okay. The other side is that uh, we listen to music because we like music. Uh, we can move the by music, we can be comforted by music, we, can, we have several different reasons. And in a sense, it's much harder to find out what is the impact of the quantum world um, regarding the aesthetics of music. I think, but that's, that's me, um, I think that uh, inside nature there are some roots of beauty. We have to find them because we might have perfect mathematics, and perfectly bad music, or vice versa. So it's not given that uh, um, if we have some kind of mathy things, uh, we will have some beautiful art. There are different views. Already Haslick was thinking about of the beauty in music, and it was like very opposite to some kind of more rational thing. I don't think that way. But I think that's important to understand some reason. And there are people in the cognitive science who are investigating why do we like what we like, for example. Uh, my way of seeing things that we like music, if there are some, uh, some connection, for example, uh, with the images you create in the mind, or if there is a kind of gestural connection, like you hear a very soft music, and you think of a caressing gesture. This is me. If we really are able to find out um, some of the reason why a musical piece is a beautiful musical piece, and we are able to formalize all the stuff with the quantum, with the mathematics, let's say like that, used for the quantum physics, then we can use the quantum to make beautiful stuff. I don't think we are now at this point. That could be a research question. Maybe we could never achieve that, but. Uh, I think that could be a nice challenge. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> More people could be fascinated by science at this point. Well, it sounds like it may be some time before people are saying, 
that quantum is massive. But I want to leave you with a bit more of Maria's music. Entitled 3D Underwater Robots, this is an experiment with computer sounds and the sonification of quantum-driven robotic movements. Quantum music is sometimes very short. Thank you very much to Maria and Philip for talking to me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. You can find links to Maria's work and, of course, Philip's work on the article that accompanies this podcast on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. Thanks again to Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Pfeiffer Vacuum provides all types of vacuum equipment, including hybrid and magnetically levitated turbo pumps, leak detectors and analysis equipment, as well as vacuum chambers and systems. You can explore all of its products at pfeiffer-vacuum.com. We'll be back next month with something else from this wonderful world of physics. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.